Hi everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of teaching and learning. I'm Ryan Rodzeski, here with Greg Baer, and we're the co-authors of When You Wonder, You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. This is a podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. On today's episode, we're talking with Dr. Bill Daggett. He's the founder of the Successful Practices Network and the International Center on Leadership for Education, as well as the co-chair of the AASA Learning 2025 National Commission, a group of superintendents, scientists, business leaders, and education experts calling for a holistic redesign of the public school system by 2025. Bill, welcome to Remaking Tomorrow. Thanks, glad to be with you. Bill, there are so many places we could start this conversation. You've had an incredible impact on public education across this nation for decades. And let's start with the AASA Learning 2025 National Commission, which you co-chair. In many ways, it's a group calling for so many of the things for which you have spent your career advocating. So what is this National Commission, and what are you aiming to accomplish? Back in uh, August of 2020, a few months into the pandemic, Several Washington groups, AASA, the National School Boards Association, National Governors Association, Council of Chief State School Officers, they were all having discussions about what do we do post-pandemic? And they said, you know, maybe the pandemic has created a tipping point in American education to address a lot of the issues we've known for decades we need to address. And so they said, let's bring great leaders from education, business, government, foundation, world together, and let's think boldly and say, what do we need to do to prepare kids for their future, not our past? And that was the initial discussions that started learning 2025. And what are some of the specific changes that the commission is calling for, and why look to the year 2025? That's not so far off. Well, initially, we're going to say learning 2030, but we concluded that that was too far away. That took the pressure off, that we had to create some degree of urgency. And so they came up with a series of recommendations, including that our students should be co-authors of their learning journey. In many ways, kids come to school today and have to take whatever it is the adults have decided they should take, whether they have any interest in it, whether they're engaged in it. And we said, let's change that. And we change it so that the wording throughout the commission talks about the word learner rather than student, because the learner depicts a more active role. With that in place, we began to say, you know, if we're really concerned about the learner, we've got to recognize that while we are first and foremost academic institutions, we are much more than that. And so they recommended that we needed to focus on the whole child. And, you know, the public began to understand that during the pandemic that we feed kids, that we deal with mental health issues, as well as academic issues. And in fact, if we don't take care of some of these other needs of our kids, we're not going to ever be able to be successful on the academics. The other issue is that we said no child should be marginalized. I'm a parent of two disabled children. We don't want kids to be marginalized because they're disabled. So no child should be marginalized because of their sex or their disability or their race or their religion or their social economic status. But most importantly, then the commission said, we got to be future focused. 
that we're preparing kids for a world fundamentally different than our 20th century education system was designed to do. Let's talk a little bit about that, Bill. You've said that we need a growing awareness of how the current model of American education was designed for a different purpose at a different time in our history. Can you give our listeners some examples of what you mean by that? And in, in what ways is our current model outmoded or outdated, despite, of course, the heroic and incredible efforts of teachers working within that model? You think about the iPhone. What has it replaced in your life? How about communication, using it for GPS? It's your camera. It, it does all kinds of things for you. But technology in general, not just the iPhone, has advanced. For example, have you used spell check recently? If you need information, do you instantly Google it? When's the last time, however, you used an encyclopedia that we all had in houses when we grew up? When's the last time you used a dictionary? And my point about all that is this. Technology now does exactly what we're trying to prepare students to do in the 20th century. And in the workplace, in our personal lives, if technology can do something faster, more efficiently, more effective, we use the technology. Much of what we are now still focused on in terms of our curriculum was designed for a 20th century when we didn't have any of this technology. We've got to prepare kids today to be able to do what technology can't do. We got to prepare them with the skills, the knowledge, and the attributes that supplement and move beyond technology. And that calls for a fundamental redesign of our instructional programs and ultimately our workforce design as well. You're so right, Bill. We write and talk all the time about young people navigating rapid and in many ways unprecedented social and technological change. It's something that you've written often about. You've written that while we're working hard on improving education and learning here in the United States, the reality is that the rest of the world is changing faster, leaving an ever-growing gap. So tell us more about that. Technology and the iPhone is the example of it that we all know, but artificial intelligence is now able to write algorithms. And if you can write an algorithm for any task, the technology can do it faster, more efficiently than a human being. So we're seeing this incredible spike in what the technology can do. And I'm going to try, Greg, to give a specific example. It's called GPT-3. It's an advancement in technology. GPT-1, when you uh, go to send an email, you put the first three or four letters in to the person you want to send it, and your contact list pops up. It's predictive analytics. It helps you do things more effectively. GPT-2 came out about a year ago. And what is that? You go to type an email and you type the first three or four words and what happens? The next three or four words pop up. If you type those first three or four words, you will not necessarily get the next same three or four words as I get if I type them because it's based upon our history. It's based upon the phraseology we use, the level we write at, and it populates it. That was GPT-2. GPT-3, just emerging, it's over 100 times more powerful than GPT-2. And every kid is going to have this within the year. You've got to type the first three or four or five words in an email or a report you're being asked to write, and it'll give you not the next three or four words. It'll give you the entire email or the entire report. Now, 
here it becomes an issue. Which did spell check due to our ability to spell? Which did our global positioning systems due to our ability to be able to conceptualize where things are? The reality of it is, it is impacting brain development. And GPT-3 is going to have a profound impact on literacy, on brain development, and it needs to have a profound impact on our instructional programs. Some of the 121 districts of Learning 2025 are working actively on figuring out what do we need to teach differently? How do we need to teach differently? Change in technology, especially because artificial intelligence is now exponential. And the gap between where our kids are and where they need to be in the immediate years ahead has never been greater. And that gap is true, too, for the parents, families, and caregivers in the lives of kids. We're so far afield from the carbon copies I knew as a student, and that really wasn't that many years ago. This is Greg Bear along with Ryan Rudzeski. We're talking with Dr. Bill Daggett, founder of the International Center on Leadership for Education, as well as the co-chair of the AASA Learning 2025 National Commission. Bill, a holistic redesign of the public school system by 2025 is no small task. But as you know well, educators have been redesigning schools in their own communities for decades. You founded the International Center for Leadership in Education in 1991. Can you tell us a little bit about what the center is and what drove you to start it? What were the needs you were setting out to address? Yeah, that goes all the way back to 1983 when a national report called The Nation at Risk came out and made some very bold recommendations of what public education should do. I had the privilege of representing New York State on the work with the Nation at Risk. And following that report, New York State made a decision to really try to become in today's term, bold. And we created a statewide commission of business leaders, education, community leaders, and it was called Futuring. We did things like uh, we created the first concept of having technology as a core requirement in our schools, and we implemented that and a series of other major shifts. That led me to have a lot of exposure internationally because back in the mid and late 80s, Everybody was looking at Japan and Germany kind of as the cutting edge in education. And so I traveled a lot internationally for the state, began to speak all over the country, and concluded at the time, even though I had a great relationship with the board and the commissioner, that I thought I could have a greater impact, not from a policy side, but from a practice side. And so I started the International Center to try to find the nation's best success stories around making the fundamental changes that the state commission and the nation at risk were calling for. So with that in place, we put a stake in the ground. I left the department and started the International Center, and it's called International Center. Yet within about five years, we did very, very little international work. And the reason is every community, every state, every nation, it's got its own DNA, And the practices that would work in Japan and Germany are not necessarily transferable to America. And so that's why we created the center to create best U.S. practices to share nationwide. The center hosted its first model schools conference in 1993. Can you tell us a little bit about that early conference? Where were you? Who was there? And what were you hoping to accomplish? 
Yeah, the uh, first conference we held in Raleigh, North Carolina, had no idea how many people would show up. It was just kind of word of mouth that people were hearing me speak. And we tried to bring together the 10 best examples we could find in the country and showcase them. We thought we would have 300 people. We ended up with the exact number was 1,248. And <laughs> we had so many people in this little hotel, Holiday Inn. We had a rent circus tent, put them in the parking lot. We actually ran some of the opening sessions in those circus tents. The problem is it was uh, in the mid-90s, and it was a little warm in those tents. Uh, that's grown now through the years to a, a much, much larger conference where we typically get around five, 6,000 people. And that very conference of trying to find best practices so that practice can inform policy, that is the same model we're now using for the National Summit for Learning 2025. Bill, whether through conferences like these or your webinars, your many writings, in-person events and trainings, you're interacting with thousands of educators annually. So you hold a unique perspective. Tell us, what are today's educators most excited about? What are some of the things that they're working on? And for those of us who are outside the classroom, how can we be most helpful to these incredible educators? In most districts, you can break the staff into thirds. There's about a third of them that when we begin to talk about changing technology and where the world is going, they get excited and they really want to do something different and they want to do it immediate. Then you got another third that say, well, maybe who's going to train us? Where do we get the technology? Can you prove it to me? They're not negative people. They're realists. And then you got another third that basically say over my dead body, Will you mess up my 2010 laminated lesson plan? We've learned some important lessons through the years, Greg. Don't try to change the whole system at once. That bottom third will cause enough friction to any change that you just can't move it forward. Business leaders, foundations, invest in the top one third. Invest in them. Let them discover and work together across school districts to create the best practices, and they will make it work. And what we are finding with our 30 years of experience of doing this is the middle third will watch. And if it works in a year or two, they'll come aboard. And now you have created the tipping point, the critical mass. And you got two thirds of your staff and your community together to make the fundamental change you need. As you do that, we realize we have an instructional design issue that needs to be addressed. They recognize if you really focus on the future and you look at the research that groups like McKenzie and others are providing, that the skills are different, the knowledge is different, the attributes of our students are different than they needed in the past because they need to have a much heavier emphasis on things like self-leadership, strong interpersonal skills, higher cognitive skills, In effect, they've got to do what the technology can't do. Once you recognize we have an instructional design issue and begin to address that, you begin to see that we have a workforce design issue. You know, the medical field has done that. Other fields have done that. We have not done that in education yet. Start with what are the skills, knowledge, attributes kids need? What do we need to do in our curriculum to address that? And then you'll, in an evolutionary way, over the next two, three, four years, discover maybe we need to do some staffing patterning differently than we now do. 
Bill, as we talk to you, it's clear that so much of your work has been focused on bringing educators and leaders together to learn from and with one another. And along those lines, in 2003, you founded the Successful Practices Network. Can you tell us a little bit about what that network does? The Successful Practices Network was our attempt to bring together the nation's most innovative, successful practices. And so we could have teachers talking to teachers, principals talking to principals, superintendents talking to superintendents who were on the cutting edge, which became in many ways the foundation of what we're trying to do with learning 2025. We did a lot of site visits to the best practices. We break them down by the needs of individual areas. So if you think about rural schools, their needs are quite different than the needs of the large urban school districts. And so we take the best practices, but segment them by urban, suburban, rural, high wealth, poverty-based communities, then try to showcase them. We did it with the Model Schools Conference, now with the National Summit. Bill, like almost no one else, you crisscross not only the nation, but the world, helping schools effectively prepare their students for the future. Bill, if you had to boil all of this down and name the basic building blocks of success, what would they be? Are there things that all good future-ready schools should do? Number one, first, foremost, and too often not addressed, you have to recognize that culture trumps strategy. And so you've got to first create a culture that will embrace change. And right now, it's not there. It's not there because of our teachers or administrators' fault, partly because of the pandemic, because you can't change faster than the rate of readiness and trust. And we had a rate of readiness to look at change in American education two years ago, pre-pandemic, more than we do today. Our teachers, our administrators, they're physically, emotionally exhausted. And to say, oh, now let's talk about change in 2025, really, really tough. And then we have the issue of trust. The nation has become politically polarized on the left and the right. And from a political point of view, people have recognized that you really want to have change. You're not going to get it at the national level. You're not going to get it at the state level. You've got to get it at the local level. And the best way to address that is through a school board. So they've become the epicenter of many of these very, very emotional, explosive debates, which has caused an issue of trust on both the left and the right. I'm a great proponent for change, but revolutionists get killed. You got to make change evolutionary. Start with culture. Once you start with culture, then let the top one third run off and figure out the innovative practices that work. Middle third of the staff of the community, don't make them change. Just ask them to watch. If the kids are doing better academically, socially, emotionally, Watch, and those practices work, begin to implement them. And then kind of that bottom third, my advice is, we're not going to make you change. Just don't get in the way. For the good of our kids, for the good of our nation, we've got to figure out fundamental shifts. When you do all that, you'll come down to the fact that we do have to teach a different set of skills, knowledge, and attributes. We have a curriculum design issue and ultimately a workforce issue. Bill, how can people find out more about you and the work you're doing? Email me. My email is bill at bdaggett, D-A-G-G-E-T-T, bill at bdaggett.com. Google Learning 2025. You'll find out a whole lot about the work 
Learning 2025 is engaged in and I'm engaged in, or uh, Google the Successful Practices Network, or just Google my name. You'll get all kinds of information. Dr. Daggett, before we go, just one more question. What's one thing that parents and educators can do today to make tomorrow a more promising place for every learner? Think about your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations for your kids when they leave school. And then think about what are the skills and attributes they'll need. Right now, with our young people, most parents, we haven't focused on the next grade, the next test, the next level of education. I want them to think broader. I want them to think about the change in workplace, home, and society. What do they want their kids to do, be able to do, to be successful, and then build back from their future, not forward from the past in the schools of our youth. Thanks again to Dr. Bill Daggett, founder of the International Center on Leadership for Education, the Successful Practices Network, and the co-chair of the AASA Learning 2025 National Commission. Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning, a Pittsburgh-based network of people and organizations that ignite engaging, relevant, and equitable learning practices in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. Learn more at remakelearning.org slash tomorrow.